CNN. Radio. This is CNN Profiles, where we get to know people who have the experience and knowledge to impact our understanding of the world. And to help us understand the world, our guest today begins with one of the simplest things we learn as children. One plus one. Our guest, Sal Khan, that's his voice, is the go-to guy online right now for kids who need help with math and science. It can be an extremely basic lesson, explained with Sal Khan's signature enthusiasm. If I have one avocado, and then you were to give me another avocado, how many avocados do I now have? Well, let's see, I have one, two avocados. Or it can be as advanced as you can imagine. So let's take the derivative of x to the n. And now that we know the binomial theorem, we have the tools to do it. So well, how, do we, how do we take the derivative? Well, what's the classic definition of the derivative? This trove of more than 3,000 simply produced math and science lessons online has evolved into the phenomenon known as Khan Academy. And it began, as Sal Khan tells us now, by accident. There's actually been several serendipitous moments in the, this, you know, this adventure I now call the Khan Academy. I, I sometimes feel like I'm living in a science fiction book. You know, the first serendipitous moment was when the, my friend in 2006, I was tutoring all these cousins, said, you know, why don't you make some lessons on YouTube? And I said, you know, the, the YouTube's for, for cats playing piano. I, I, I don't think it'll be good for mathematics. Uh, but I, I gave it a shot anyway. So I, I would definitely count that as, as the first. Actually, the first was tutoring my cousins. Second was this one. Uh, then you fast forward to 2010. I had quit my job. It was nine months into it. Uh, my wife and I were starting to get worried. We were burning about $5,000 of our savings a month. Our son had just been born. We had to move into a larger a rental. And uh, I got a donation of $10,000 from someone named named Ann Doerr. Uh, contacted her, uh, told her, you know, if we were physical school, this would now be named after you. We had lunch, and she asked how I was supporting myself, and I, and I told her that I wasn't. And on my way home, uh, you know, she sent me a text message says, you know, well, I've just wired you $100,000. You need to be supporting yourself. Uh, so, so that was a good day. Um, and, and then, you know, that, I guess that's serendipitous moment three. <laughs> I could get, you know, serendipitous moment four, which is probably the big one. Uh, two months later, I was running a little summer program. I really wanted to see what I could do with the school day if it wasn't being based on lecture. And I had some kids playing this simulation. Six were playing a game of risk. The other 20 were trading securities based on the outcome of the game of risk. And I got another text message from Ann saying that she was at the Aspen Ideas Festival in, in Colorado, and uh, Bill Gates was on the main stage, and he was just talking about how he uses a site called the Khan Academy with uh, his children and, and even himself, uh, at which point I became somewhat nervous because uh, those videos were for, for Nadia, not, not, not for Bill Gates. Nadia being your cousin. Nadia, oh, sorry, exactly. Nadia being the cousin that, that kind of started all of this. You have a... Sp- specific idea of how these videos should be woven into a learning process. Tell us what that is, because it's not, it sounds like this is not just about going online, learning your lessons, and it's all over. Yeah, the core ideas behind the book kind of talk about, can we now, now that we have interesting tools like on-demand video and interactive exercises and the internet, now that we have tools like that at our disposal, can we rethink the structure of schooling? Uh, and, and, I, and I point out at length in the book, the structure is not the way humans naturally learn, and it's not the way that they've always learned. It's a 200-year-old model that we inherited literally from the Prussians, which was inspired by the Industrial Revolution. You group kids by these age-based cohorts, 
move them together at the set pace. At every station in the factory, so to speak, you kind of throw a lecture at them, see what sticks, you assess them, you get some better products, you get some worse products, and you, you grade them that way. What we think there's now an opportunity to do is, well, now that we have another way of information delivery in a way that's on demand, a student can use it at their own time, their own pace, they can use the content that they need to access, do we need to have lectures be the dominant form or live lectures be the dominant form of information delivery? Is that the best use of physical class time? And one thing I stress, what we're doing isn't to try to replace class time, it's to try to offload things from class time so that when people do interact with each other or when they actually get into the same room, they have an opportunity to interact with each other. Instead of in a traditional college classroom, 300 people sitting passively taking notes, trying to stay awake, they should all now get together. They can work together with each other, tutor each other. They can ask questions of the teacher. They might be able to work on projects. So the overarching theme that we're saying is when human beings are together, it needs to be interactive. They should be talking to each other. And the passive lecture is not about that. That information delivery can happen someplace else. This is uh, CNN Profiles. You're listening to Sal Khan, uh, and it seems that everybody in education these days wants to talk to you. I want to do something. I want to reverse engineer your success, and I want you to start from the beginning when you were a child. What was your childhood like? What were your parents like? Tell me about it. I was born in, uh, in Metairie, Louisiana. It's a suburb of, of New Orleans. Uh, you know, this is in the mid-70s. And uh, my father was a doctor, but my parents separated when I was quite young. I was, uh, I, I believe I was, I don't remember it, I was, I think, 18 months old or two years old. And, um, you know, he, he moved to Philadelphia, and I think he had a fairly, I don't think he was doing well financially despite being a doctor. Uh, so uh, essentially my mother had to fend for herself, so uh, a single mother household. I had an older sister. So I, I went to kind of a, a, a standard public school in, in Jefferson Parish. They call the county's parishes in Louisiana. It was, it was a kind of a traditional experience. But one thing that I do cite is early on I was, I was fortunate, and I think it was because my, my sister was such a good student. Uh, they also placed me in these, these gifted programs. And that gave me a glimpse of what a classroom could be like. And I think that in a large way that has informed a lot of what I'm talking about now, that most of my classes were this. It was a lecture. It was somewhat passive. A lot of the students were either lost or bored. And then one hour each day, I was taken into this other gifted program. And I remember Ms. Roussel, the first question she asked me, she was the teacher in the gifted program, said, well, what do you want to do? And I was stunned. I was a nine-year-old, and, and here's this adult asking me what I wanted to do. And I said, well, I, I like, to, I like to, to draw. And she says, well, let's explore that. And she pushed me, and she really pushed my thinking and started to incorporate other, other concepts within this passion that I had. And I said, I like to do puzzles, same thing. And so that was a kind of first glimpse, and frankly, a lot of the really deep learnings that I got, and, and frankly, why I think I, I still like creating things and, and, and building things was because of that experience I had with, with Miss Roussel in, in fourth and fifth and sixth grade. And so you were not a person of means. Your mother was not a person of means, it sounds like. What did she do to make a living? She did a bunch of uh, odd jobs. I mean, I remember when I was uh, four years, before I went to school, I used to follow her around, and she used to collect the chain from, uh, change from the vending machines in, in the local, it was actually the hospital that I was born in. She used, to, she used to do that. And then uh, later, uh, she worked as a cashier at a couple of uh, convenience stores. And then when we were in high school, we had a kind of this little failed convenience store. We don't have it anymore. Now she sells school uniforms in, in, uh, in Metairie. And, and so did that impact you at all and your perspective on life? Because clearly with these teachers inspiring you, it sounded like you were able to dream big dreams 
even though your mother was doing these kinds of jobs? Yeah, I think it goes both in both directions. I mean, I think obviously when you see your mom struggling so much just to you know pay the bills, you see other people who don't have to struggle quite as much, obviously people with professions, doctors, engineers, uh, and, and you say, well, I need to do that because that will simplify life a, a good bit if I'm able to you know, uh, uh, make a good living and, and, and buy a house and, and do things like that. And, and at the same time, uh, you know, I, I think I was fortunate in New Orleans at the time, there was a very tightly knit uh, South Asian community, India, Bangladesh, Pakistan. There weren't that many of us, so everyone got to knew, know each other. And amongst that community, it was really the, based on the way the immigration policies worked in the late 60s, early 70s. They really opened it up for doctors, researchers, and engineers from the subcontinent to come. And so a lot of our family friends, even though my mom was someone who collected change from a vending machine at one point or, or worked as a cashier, I got to associate with kids whose parents were doctors and engineers. And so I think I at least got that lens and I got to see, wow, that, 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 that's what I want to do. And through that lens, somehow you were led to MIT. Is that right? Yeah. And, and you know, here I think, uh, well, a couple of things I have to give credit for. One is my sister, who was three years older. And, and well, one, because she was such a good student, uh, a lot of teachers expected a lot of me. Uh, and then on top of that, when she, she was very independent, and when she graduated, uh, she got into Brown, Ivy League school, and uh, I, I thought, well, there's no way we're going to be able to afford that. But she was the one that explained that these schools, if, if, you, have, if you have need, they're merit-based, but if you get in, uh, they're, they're, they're actually quite good with financial aid. You have to obviously take on a lot of loans and do work study, but they can make it work so that you can go. And so uh, she made it clear that, look, you should just apply to where you want to apply to, and you know, by high school, I was I was fairly. Um, it, was, it was becoming clear that I had I had a strength in on on, you know, on the analytical side of things, and uh, a lot of people started suggesting you, you you should think about think about MIT, and it started to become my dream school. And because of my sister, I, I thought it was actually a possibility. And everybody who introduces you say, says you have three degrees from MIT. I've never heard of anybody with three degrees from MIT. What are the degrees in? I have a, a bachelor's in the degree is called electrical engineering and computer science. I have a bachelor's in mathematics, and I have a master's in electrical engineering and computer science. And that wasn't enough for you, because where did you go after that? Yeah, you know, I, I, I immediately went to, out to Silicon Valley, worked at a few tech companies, uh, a, a few unsuccessful startups, and then, uh, uh, you know, I decided I would want to round out my, 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 my background and, and kind of uh, get broader skills, and then I went to Harvard Business School. And I understand you were president of your class? That's right. So you've got the political skills as well. <laughs> well, uh, listen, President Khan, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Uh, <laughs> so let me ask you, so, so then you've rounded out your skills, and at this point you must be making great money. You've got three degrees from MIT and a Harvard Business School education. Yeah, you know, I, it was funny. I, I uh, my second year at, at Harvard Business School, I was taking a capital markets class, and uh, I really loved the class. I found it intellectually interesting, and I the professor was really good, and we kind of built a rapport. and And, and uh, he says, you know, you you should really go into a field that uses this. Uh, you have a knack for it. And I said, well, what field would that be? And he said, well, you should think about working at a at a hedge fund. And I said, well, that sounds that sounds great. What's a hedge fund? And uh, he explained, and you know, it's actually a very broad. We could do a whole other show on, on what's a hedge fund, but I started interviewing for that, and and uh, I, I got a, a gig with a actually pretty tremendous. I mean, the industry sometimes gets a bad rap, but uh, the the gentleman I worked for, his name is Dan Wool. It was Wool Capital Management. It was I, I was his first employee. Um, he was about as uh, 
you know, a, a, the best possible manager one could have, and not just for even from a work point of view, also from an ethical point of view. And uh, yeah, I, I joined him, and uh, he, I, I would say, is probably one of the best investors of his generation, and I was there to support him. And so the fund did well, and so uh, yeah, it, it was it was a good track. I mean, it, it was allowing me to pay off uh, uh, both mine and, and by that point my wife's substantial debt. She she was finishing medical school, so we had a uh, about a quarter million of debt in debt to pay off. And yet, uh, reading your book, it sounds like when you made the decision to get out of that field and to go for Khan Academy full time, it was a pretty big financial risk. It sounded like you had enough money for a down payment for a house, and that was it. Yeah, you know, I and I, you know, we weren't starving, so, but but we were. Our my son was had just been born. We didn't own a house. Uh, we had enough for a down payment in Silicon Valley. You know, a, a very expensive house can be still quite unimpressive, and, and and so so we barely had money for a down down payment, and and you know, I had a career that was, uh, you know, the 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 amazing thing about some of these finance careers is you can make a lot one, two, three years out, but what keeps you into it is every year you stay, you could make 50% more than you made the, the previous year. And so that always is a temptation. Wow, stay another year and, and it could be a lot more lucrative. Uh, but, you know, uh, circumstances took control of things and uh, so many people were, were finding value from these videos, mainly at the time. Uh, they were sending me letters, thank you letters, that it just felt like this was that this is where 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 kind of destiny was 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 bringing me to not to make it sound too too dramatic <laughs> and so so how do you approach kids who are i mean i i i can get paralyzed with math once you get to algebra and above i'm paralyzed is there still hope for people of my age who have gone through school who would love to be able to help tutor their daughters uh and but we just don't have the math gene at this point yeah, and this is something I feel very strongly about is that I think everyone actually has the math gene. It's just that mathematics is so cumulative in, in the content that when people get to algebra, they actually have trouble engaging the content because they're, they're missing a lot of the basics. And then they say, oh, I'm just not meant for math. When in reality, if, if they're just allowed to make sure they have a very strong foundation, I think not only would they find algebra doable, they would actually find it engaging. They'd actually find it uh, beautiful. I mean, this is one thing that I try to emphasize that, you know, math is the, the purest philosophy. It's it's abstracted thought. And, and when you really understand it, I think anyone will find it exciting. And I think there's no such thing as a gene for math, just as there's not a gene for uh, a gene for writing or a gene for communication. I think there might be a gene for basketball, uh, but 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 not at least at, and at least not at the, the more core level that most of us are exposed to in, in, in high school in algebra or calculus, whatever else. And in terms of the cumulative nature of this, you talk about mastery learning. That sounds like a very important concept to you. That's right, and I write a lot about this in the book. And it, once you know, none of these ideas are new ideas. And I, the more I did research on it, the more I realized, oh my God, there's all of this literature about it. People have proven this, but it never went mainstream. Or you know, people have been doing mastery learning uh, 30, 40, 50. There's even a study 70 years ago. Where, and the whole idea is, it's basic. You you won't progress to a more advanced topic unless you show a reasonable level of mastery of a more basic one. It's silly to give someone a, a B or a C. You've identified a weakness in them and then push them on to the next topic. They should continue to work on that topic until they get an A. The reason why we don't traditionally do that is logistics. Our, 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 we have kind of a factory model of education inherited from the Prussians. Everyone has moved together in these age-based cohorts. The ma I, I, I believe the reasons why in the past mastery uh, based instruction, despite the fact that all the research backed it up, 
did not gain traction is that it was very hard logistically to do because mastery-based instruction was implicitly self-paced instruction. And so teachers had to run around, give a lot of bunch of worksheets, grade different papers for every different student. Very, very hard if you have 20 or 30 students in the room. But a technology is really good at that information coordination part, and so it frees the teacher to focus on the human part. And so, you know, now I'm having, I'm having this fantasy listening to you. I said, I, I, my fantasy is I want to convince you to move into my house and become my family's personal tutor. Is that possible? It's already there. <laughs> and it's free. And it'll always be free. It's, 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 there's a site for that. It's called Khan Academy. And, and why will it always be free? What, why not charge for something like this? Well, you know, it's in the early days when people were trying to convince me to, to make this a business, they said, oh, you know, make most of it free and maybe SAT prep you could charge for, the accounting stuff you could charge for, the professional stuff you could charge for. And it's actually all of those conversations convinced me more and more that this should be free because they were essentially saying the really valuable stuff, the stuff that actually separates the haves from the have-nots, let's start charging for that, the test prep, the, the, the professional stuff. And, and the opportunity here, you know, for society, if, if we can literally give, you know, normally when you think about charity, it's about giving the poor something that's kind of a cheaper version of what the rich have. And the idea now that you can give anyone, the poorest of the poor, you can give them the same resource that Bill Gates' children have, that the most affluent, um, uh, connected people have. Uh, that's, that's, you know, I read a lot of science fiction books, and, and for me, that's just, just, just a, an epic idea. And if you can be part of that, you know, no, no amount of money can, can, can compare. One final thing, you know, you talk about how, you know, every child, there's no such thing you say in your book, no such thing as a perfect learner. Every child struggles to some degree. If you had a room full of kids in an audience right now who you knew were struggling over something, what would you tell them to get them motivated and to break through maybe their self-imposed barriers? I would tell them that everyone struggles on something. And it's not because, you know, the word slow should not be the same thing as the word dumb. It's it somehow become to mean that in, in our language. And that the important thing is that you use that struggle to identify where your weaknesses are, build up those weaknesses. And we see over and over again students who do that, uh, no matter where they are initially, they end up racing ahead. If you, if you are able to build your strong foundation, uh, there's, there's no telling what you might be able to accomplish. That's a great way to end it. Sal Khan, thank you so much for joining us on CNN Profiles. Thanks for having me. Remember, you can listen to CNN Profiles on CNN.com slash Soundwaves or on the apps SoundCloud or Stitcher. You can also subscribe to us on iTunes. Just one request. If you like us, share us. That's CNN Profiles.